thank you very much for uh, joining us here tonight. I'm talking to Wayne Byrne. We're going to talk to Wayne about writing. Why the hell would you bother? And we're hoping that Wayne's going to talk enough to you either get inspired or at least not waste your time trying to do it. <laughs> because <laughs> you don't have the stamina in you that it obviously requires. And I've been like talking to Wayne in the past, but Wayne, you, you've written three books, three film books. I mean, uh, also you've got a career of reviews and, and articles from magazines but in a short space of time you've had three books published starting with Tom DeCillo one of the great independent filmmakers who did Box of Moonlight uh, Johnny Swadehead and uh, Living in Oblivion one of my favourite films and then you did a book on, on Burt Reynolds film and television work uh, it was probably the most extensive book written about the man's film career and that led to a, a book a memoir with Nick McLean one of the great cinematographers that uh, people probably don't even know they've seen his work. Well, tell us this before we get into that and talk about the, the rigors and the hard work involved in that kind of work that you do. How did you get into this game? How did it start? Well, it all started about maybe 10 or 11 years ago, which is when I started my professional writing career. Um, I started off literally, I had a, a phone book sized portfolio of amateur scribblings that I put together over a number of years. You know, I just... I just wanted to write my feelings about movies that I was watching down somehow. And, you know, they were terribly undisciplined. You know, there was no form or function to them. I just wanted to write down what I thought about this movie, whether it was good or bad. And eventually I ended up with this huge, big phone book sized thing of, of reviews. So my friend Sarah said to me one day, why don't you try and get published somewhere? You know, go to a magazine or a newspaper or something like that. So I thought about it and I thought, sure, who's going to hire me? I, you know, I didn't go to college I didn't study journalism or literature or anything like that. You know, who's going to take me on? But I said, OK, I'll go to the Leinster Leader, which is the kind of the biggest newspaper here in, in Leinster and Kildare. So I rang them up quite brazenly and asked for a meeting with the editor to show him my portfolio. And he said, yeah, come on in. We'll have a meeting, which was great. So I went in and he kind of summarily flipped through the, through the portfolio I don't think he actually read any of the reviews, but at the end of the meeting, he said, you're hired. Start next weekend. And that was the start of literally my, my writing career. You know, I was thrust straight into, I had a page, a whole page. So I was like two reviews, two cinema reviews and a DVD review. And then a column as well sometimes of just other film news. It was great. I mean, the fact that I was being published and doing this thing that I loved and getting a few quid for it. It, you know, it meant a lot to me because I never thought I'd be in the position to be published in a, a local newspaper, let alone writing books later on. And it just it felt like my thing, you know, it felt like finally something that, you know, I always kind of wanted to do, even though it wasn't like you know, what you'd call full time, you know. If it taught me anything, it was more about structuring a review, you know, in terms of, OK, you have your plot synopsis and then your your thoughts about the film and your summary, you know, that kind of thing. But it, it didn't really... Because of, I guess, the films I was reviewing, it didn't teach me a whole lot in terms of uh, the depth of my writing, you know what I mean? Because they were all very, it was it was films around 2009, 2010, blockbuster stuff. Mostly, I did get to review some older films, retro screenings and the odd arthouse film. But it was mostly big summer releases and, you know, big mainstream stuff. And you know, there wasn't a whole lot to, to <laughs> you know. So my very first gig, actually, my very, very first job at the paper was reviewing I think it was the sixth Harry Potter film. It could be around fifth or sixth, whatever it was. And I had never seen a Harry Potter film before in my life. So, of course, I was diligent and I went and rented all of the previous ones and spent a whole day watching Harry Potter films. Oh, my God. 
one of the things I hate, it's probably the biggest chore when you're writing about writing criticism or writing about films is the damn plot synopsis. It's the most, it's a chore because all you're doing is just relaying information that's there on a PR sheet. You know what I mean? And you can't really make it interesting. You can't, you can't give away too much, you know? So I generally try and summarize it in one or two lines if I can, and then leave the rest for critique, you know? Um, and I tried as much as possible to bring critique to that kind of, you know, regional newspaper. But that's, you know, at the end of the day, it's probably not what people who are reading are looking for. Mm. So it's not that kind of outlet. You know, like I say, occasionally I did get to write about an older film or a, an art house film that gave me a bit more leeway of interpretation or critique. But, you know, if you're if you're writing 350 words about the proposal with Sandra Bullock, the hell am I going to say? So <laughs> yeah. what, what caused the first book to be written? When did you decide to write about Tom DeCillo? So after I lost the Leinster Leader gig, I... You know, for years I've been turned down to go to film school. Every film school, film course you can imagine in Ireland I've been turned down from. So eventually I got to the stage where I was old enough to apply to Dublin Business School as a mature student. And of course they took me because it cost about seven and a half grand a year. So they're not going to turn down that. So I got in there, you know, got turned down from everywhere else in the meantime. And I, I didn't... I wasn't a big fan of it there. The course wasn't for me. It was very introductory. It was very, you know, it was for someone who's coming fresh from school and doesn't have a background or maybe a great history with film, you know what I mean? So it was that kind of course, but not for me. So I left after second year because I just couldn't justify the expense of, mm. of going there and not getting anything from it. So in my despair, after I left, you know, the thoughts of going, having to go find a job and something, probably something I didn't like or didn't want to do. And I said, oh, geez, what the hell am I going to do? So at this point, I had known Tom DeChillo because I'd interviewed him for a newspaper and a magazine for the re release of his Doors film, When You're Strange, which I loved. And so I'd kept in contact with him because he's my favorite director and I loved talking to him and picking his brain. And we just, we got on very well. So once that was kind of the last indie work he did, really, it has done in a long time. He's done a lot of television now, yeah. Yeah, well, he did a, 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 a proper indie, as in, you know, totally financed and shot and edited, directed by himself, called Down in Shadowland, which has received some um, festival screenings and whatnot, but didn't get a, a general release. But When You're Strange would have been his last or most recent big film. You know, it was a, a wide release, you know, and um, did very well at the film festivals. But we kept in contact. And at one stage I said to him, you know, Tom, one of the things I've always wanted was to walk into a bookshop and, and buy a book on your career. The only thing I could ever find was uh, a paragraph or two on him in movie encyclopedias, you know, which was never enough. I always wanted a book about him, his life, his movies, all that kind of thing. But you could never get it. And the one there's there's a series called Director's Cuts, which is published by Columbia University Press. You know, and I, I used to always go into the IFI shop and asked him, is there one of these coming out on Tom DeChillo yet? You know, and he'd, be like, he'd look it up. He's like, no, nothing there on Tom DeChillo. You know, so anyway, I, I asked Tom, I said, listen, would you mind if, if I propose this idea to you, which I, I want to write a book in your career? And he very generously said, that sounds like a good idea. Let's have a, let's have a talk about it and see what we come up with. So I just basically laid out an idea, a plan I wanted to do, which was to chapter on each film. So there's eight films. You know, chapter in each and at the end of each one a Q&A with Tom which digs in deeper into goes beyond my discussions which were very thematic you know analysis so at the end of that me and Tom would have a Q&A and we'd dig in as deep as we could about the making of the films you know so it was kind of it was part my analysis and part 
Tom's, you know, interpretation as well as mine. It was five years of discussions, and that's what got us to the final draft. But along the way, um, I think Tom suggested that, you know, maybe we could get Catherine Keener to talk to us because she's in, you know, four or five of his films. So she's a major part of his body of work. And of course, I was like, yeah, Catherine Keener, that'd be great. So Tom hooked me up with Catherine. We, we had a chat over a number of days and she was fantastic. And I just thought, God, you know, if, if we get this good from everybody from the films, wouldn't that be something? So it led from Catherine Keener then to Steve Buscemi, who's another huge part of Tom's career. Um, and he knows him, you know, going back to the early 80s. So they have a, a good, deep friendship there, which we, we explored as well. So then that would lead to, say, Chris Knott, uh, Matthew Modine, Maxwell Caulfield, uh, Melanie Diaz, uh, Kevin Corrigan. Basically, everyone, all the main actors from each movie, with the exception of Brad Pitt, who we almost got, but... You know, after I penetrated those layers of people who surround him, all his protectors and handlers, you know, there was a lot of back and forth. Oh, Brad's free this week. He might be able to make it. Part of the process, isn't it, when you're doing something like this? Well, not not for me, mainly because 99% of the time I usually get a straight introduction to somebody. So to go back a bit, you were five years in the making, and that's a long time. You would obviously, obviously have to be earning some money in the meantime, you'd starve to death. So and also this is a book that didn't have a publishing deal, am I right? That's right. I didn't I didn't I didn't know what was gonna happen to the book in terms of will this be published. I just had a drive and a passion to do this. And I didn't even think for the first four and a half years, I definitely didn't think, is this is there gonna be a publisher of this? Because I didn't want that to impede on the process or put me off, you know, the thoughts about, you know, oh, this might not get a publisher, or will any will an audience be there for it? I didn't want to think about that. I just assumed the book will be finished and then I'll worry about that. So come to the end of the book, I was literally just wrapping up the book and I said, okay, now I'll start approaching publishers. So obviously the first ones in mind, you know, for me was Columbia University Press because I always envisaged the book being part of that series. That's just something I just, it was just a personal goal almost. Their whole thing is they're director focused to each one. So this is a John Carpenter one. There's a David Cronenberg one there, Steven Spielberg, Clint Eastwood. So they consider directors that are part of the series to be of you know utmost importance on a on an international scale. So that's the way I always looked at Tom. He's influential, he's important. I wanted him to be part of that. So I approached them, approached a couple of others, and unbelievably, Columbia got back to me and said, This is something we'd be very interested in. Tom DeCillo is very much part of that, you know, canon of directors who we consider important. So definitely please send us on the manuscript. So I sent them the manuscript and about two or three weeks later, they said, we'd love the book. We want to take it on. Here's the deal. And I couldn't believe it. And the result of it is this. So it's now part of this whole series, you know, which I, to this day, I cannot believe when I walk into a shop and I see it there, you know, so that's how it worked. And how many million did you get paid for your first? <laughs> oh man, I lost count. <clears throat> So this this is the the portion of uh, the interview where we say don't do this at home, kids, <laughs> or do I say do do <laughs> because like it's a big thing to do to, to take on that time. But obviously, love and passion is what fuel the writing. But obviously, you have to be able to write, or there's no point in doing it. Well, that's it. Um, and again, I was probably you know I was doing it on school, so I was never quite sure if what I was writing was any good. I know that Tom would have a look at my pages and say, yeah, this is brilliant. Or, 
you know, how, how about we delve into this team or that team a bit further, maybe go less on that. But in terms of the actual writing, I didn't have anybody there. I didn't have an editor. I didn't have anybody to say that's good or bad, fix that. Did you provide one in the end? I, I was, yeah, I had an editor, but the way that worked was they ended up publishing the book exactly as I handed it to them with the one exception, which I couldn't believe, which is the one exception they asked was, could I add an extra introduction at the start just to put it in an academic context to say to, if you know, for students coming to this book, that this, these films and this artist is worth exploring in an academic context. Now, the book isn't an academic piece, which is strange for that series, because these are all highly academic books. For me, it's not enjoyable to read. I don't read academic books, you know, and it's they're there for information. That's all they are. But the way I approached this was I wanted this book to be approachable and enjoyable to anybody, regardless if they're an academic or maybe they just have an interest in film history or indie cinema or just about the stars who are in the book. You know, um, I wanted it. And it's a story. And that's my approach to these books as well. It's a story. It's not just critical analysis. I want, you to learn, I want you to learn about the arc of these artists' lives. Well, I think we went further than had it been an academic book because it was so personal, because Tom went that far with me. You know, I mean, you cannot talk about Box of Moonlight without talking about Tom's growing up and his father and all those circumstances. So the book became a personal journey as well. You know, and because I ended up interviewing the likes of Steve Buscemi and Chris Knott, people who know Tom for 30 or 40 years, it became so much more than, oh, yeah, I worked on that movie with Tom. It was more than that. It was we really dug into his background and his his early years in New York and meeting these people and his immersion into the the no wave scene, the indie scene, you know, the local theater off Broadway, all that kind of stuff. So it really it opened my eyes as a fan of Tom, you know, and just just getting to work with Tom over five years was an incredible experience. I mean, he became a very dear friend to me, you know, and I spent a week in New York with him as part of my research. I went over to New York just to talk to him for a week and get all the, the bulk of all those main interviews done. And every day I went up to his apartment on the Upper West Side and each day we spent, you know, hours talking about one specific film. So that was our work for the day, you know. It's just an unreal experience. And, you know, I'll say the best thing about writing these books is the people you meet. And it's just, it was incredible. It was an incredible experience, you know, apart from the getting published and all that. How do you separate the fan from the writer? Is it just pure discipline when you get down to it? Or, as I said, it's just lovely to see you so buzzed by your own, kind of seeing your book in the shops. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't ever want the fan to be too far away. Because yeah. if the fan's not there, I don't think the passion will be there. I think you, you always have to have an element of a fan, you know, because... That's, that's, that's what drives you. I mean, I wouldn't be writing these books had I not been a fan. So I can't just approach them from a, kind of an objective journalism or academic point of view, because then I think the heart and the soul is going to be gone out of them. I always have to treat these people. Oh, you know, there is an element of elevating them to, to a degree, because in my mind, they are they are artists who are very dear to me and very influential to me. So there is, you know, I, I love these people, so I wouldn't do it otherwise. But do you, would you worry about that for future work where you might feel, OK, I might need to critique a bit stronger here and say negative things to, about an artist. Well, you know, you have to be honest, I guess. And I was even in the Burt Reynolds book, you know, not every Burt Reynolds film was, was great, you know, and sometimes I had to critique his, his work, but in terms of Tom's work, I didn't, I didn't have to face that challenge because I love all of his films. That's fair enough. That's that. That's but one day it's going to happen when, and they'll be alive when you're critiquing their work. <laughs> <laughs>
first book published, uh, it was a labour of love. So any m money that came was 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 extra potatoes or whatever they say. Um, and five years is a long time by any stretch, you know. Obviously, you were doing other things and you were trying to uh, eke a living out. But the Wayne, the Wayne gets involved in Burt Reynolds next. Tell me more about that. Yeah, well, the way that worked was the book came out in I think it was December 2017. And immediately when it came out, you know, obviously it was very exciting. And your, your first published book and seeing it the way you always imagined it to be was just completely surreal. And as soon as I finished, like I never had any designs on doing more books or becoming a writer of books. You know, it just was never crossed my mind. I just wanted this one Tom DeChillo book on my shelf, you know. But then as soon as the book came out, I kind of found myself wanting or needing to be writing again. You know, because I did spend five years doing it and it was part of my my life. You know, I mean, I mean, when you're a writer, it, it, there's no clock. You don't clock in and clock out. You know, if you're home, you're generally working and writing and whatever it is. And if you're not interviewing people, you're you're editing or you're writing pieces. So as soon as the Burt Reynolds or the Tom DeChillo book came out, I kind of had to think about it. It's like, OK, if I'm going to write about something next, what's it going to be? And it has to be something that I'm equally as passionate about as Tom DeChillo. So I thought about it like, OK, I've done my favorite director. How about my favorite actor? And I don't have a huge list of favorite actors. I'm, I'm definitely more of a, a director kind of person or, uh, you know, DPs and people like that, editors, than I am into actors. But I thought, okay, here's a short list of actors I'd love to write about. I wouldn't mind sitting up at three o'clock in the morning with my eyes falling and still typing. So who will do that? Who will keep me going? And I came down to a short list of people like, you know, Clint Eastwood, John Wayne, Dennis Hopper, and Burt Reynolds, Burt Reynolds being number one. And, you know, John Wayne and Clint have been written about Dennis a little bit as well. But nobody has really, in my mind, written a satisfactory book on Burt Reynolds' work. There are, there, he has two autobiographies himself, which are all, you know, very personal. And there's a couple of other books about his personal life, but that has no interest to me whatsoever. So I just wanted to write a book about the films and some of the TV shows, the, at least the ones he was a star in or a co-star in. So... I approached, again, there was a publisher I had in mind because I knew their inventory. I knew they had a great selection of film books and they were fantastic. But part of my deal with Columbia was that they had an option on me for my next book. So whatever my next book was going to be, I had to at least offer it to them. Mm -hmm. So I kind of thought to myself, they're not going to go for this, you know. So I went in somewhat skeptically and I, 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 I said to them, listen, I have an idea for my next book. It's going to be about Burt Reynolds and his film career. And as expected, they said, Wayne, we're sorry, but Burt Reynolds isn't really part of our world. He's not we, He's not part of that whole idea of, you know, world-renowned directors, filmmakers, whatever it was. So I'm sorry, we're going to have to decline. It's like, thank God, because now I can go to who I wanted to, you know. So I wanted to go to McFarland. So I approached McFarland. I, lay, I, I sent a proposal in, and they said, you know what, Wayne, where we are, they're based in North Carolina and London, but stock, they're based in North Carolina. They said, here, Bert is not just a film star. He's a local hero. He's an icon. He's a legend. He's an American hero. So, yes, we'd love to take on this project. So I was over the moon. But the only thing there is, now I have a deadline. And the deadline was a year. <laughs> you know, So I went from five years writing about eight movies to one year writing about 120 movies. It was more difficult, I guess, in terms of 
each one was probably about a different movie. You know, it wasn't all, say, like in the first book, it was all Tom-centric. We were talking about one guy and getting insight into this guy in some of the films, a couple of films. But, you know, each each interview was about different movies and, you know, different different times in film history as well. So you're going, you're jumping from, it could be the 60s or 70s to recent times. And yeah, it was huge. It was a huge book. And you know yourself, you've seen the book. It's 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 massive. It's a... <laughs> an epic tone you left out all the stuff with cameos and archer but we won't go into that i've gotten abuse from several friends for leaving out archer <laughs> what else was it about about burt reynolds that attracted you i think there's a depth to his work that is not has not been written about you know and there's a depth of teams there that spans entire decades you know he, he's been talking about family life in particular since the late 60s right up until his most his, his last film the last movie star you know and I, the team of family is something very important to me in my work you know it's there it's the central team of the tom DeCillo book probably you know it's it's there in a lot of my work and it's something that fascinated me about Bert. but another thing about Bert was he always felt like the one movie star even though he was the biggest movie star of all time for five years and a huge figure in film history there was something every man about him for lack of a better word you know what i mean you felt you felt like he was one of you you know what i mean never felt he was up on a pedestal you know but he could also be very sophisticated and very witty as you'd see in the likes of fade in or starting over or best friends films like that so he wasn't he wasn't just kind of doing the the country country hero country bumpkin kind of shtick all the time he could do those really smart roles and i think one of his best films is hustle by robert aldrich you know, where he's, it's this dark neo-noir thriller and he's playing obviously a throwback to the, the film noir detectives of the 40s, but in a very progressive modern 70s variation. And I think that's just a prime example of when Bert could be great and understated and intelligent and witty and romantic. And mm-hmm. that's just something I wanted to write about because, you know, Mo, you, you probably know yourself, whenever you, you read about Bert Reynolds, there's usually several films which are always referenced and they are... Deliverance, Smokey and the Bandit, Boogie Nights. Did these huge TV shows as well, like Evening Shade and BL Striker. And I mean, Evening Shade was such a huge success, yet when he died, nobody mentioned it. The deadline was your biggest challenge. How did you approach that challenge in structuring your your work schedule over that year and your approach to the work? That was an intense year, let me tell you. I mean, you just doing that all the time. You weren't working on anything else at that stage, were you? Well, I was. Well, apart from I was working a full-time job, but also two months into the Burt Reynolds book, I signed a, a third book deal, and I started on that at the same time. So I was literally juggling two books for that year. That would be the Nick book? The Nick McLean book, yeah. You still didn't have as much of a deadline with that book now, in fairness. It wasn't going to get in the way of your finishing your Burt Reynolds book. No, but I still I had the same deadline almost. It was just two months ahead. But basically how I came around to that book was I had approached Nick McLean to talk to me for the Burt Reynolds book because he's an intrinsic part of Burt's life and career because he shot so many of his films and they were good friends for 40 years. So I said, geez, I got to get Nick McLean in here. <clears throat> and again, because I'm, I'm, I'm interested in hearing from those kind of guys more so than, say, Burt's leading actresses or any of that kind of stuff. So I said, I have to get Nick McLean. And Nick McLean had shot some of my favorite movies and some of the best films of the new Hollywood era. I mean, you're talking McCabe and Mrs. Miller, Sugarland Express, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Deer Hunter, Heaven Can Wait, Marathon Man, 
looking for Mr. Goodbar, the Goonies, Short Circuit, Cobra, where do I end? This is apart from all the Burke Reynolds stuff, you know, so I knew, God, it'd be great to talk to Nick McLean. So I tracked him down, I think it was on Facebook, and I typed in Nick McLean just to see if he was there, and I couldn't see any anybody that recognized him. I said, fuck it, I'll take a chance, send an instant message or whatever it was. And within an hour, he got back to me and he said, yeah, Burke Reynolds is a big part of my life, so I'd be happy to talk to you. So we arranged a chat, Skype chat, talked about all the stuff I needed to talk about, all the, the making of the movies, his friendship with Bert. And I asked him what he be interested in doing my forward because I, I hadn't realized just how great a friendship they'd had and how much they meant to each other's lives and careers. So I thought this guy's ideal for the forward. And he was more than happy to do that. He wrote a terrific forward. Um, but I won't say, again, like, like with Tom DeChillo, we kind of kept chatting. You know, we, we just kind of enjoyed each other's company and we would just we would have further Skype chats just talking about movies and life and stuff like that. Really, really enjoyed Nick's, Nick's company. I still do to this day. He's one of my best friends. But um, I just chatting to him one day, I said, Nick, how is there no books on your career considering what you've done? And he said, you know, if anybody was ever going to write a book about my career, I would want it to be you. And that really meant a whole lot to me. You know, it was huge to, to hear that. So I said, well, you know what, let's do it. So I went, asked around with my publisher, and within a week I had a publishing contract for that book. Writing the Burt Reynolds, you obviously did it. You were back to writing analysis and critique for each yeah, film. Well, well, this was definitely, of all my books so far, this was definitely the more, I guess you could call it objective, because, you know, I wasn't working with Bert on the book. He died about three quarters way through it, and I never... All I shared with him was a, a correspondence, single correspondence, but we never we never got to chat and officially sit down and go through his career. So I wasn't really working with anybody in particular. So it was definitely more objective than the other books in terms of I'm going through each film, writing, doing a background making of kind of stuff and juggling that with my critical analysis, you know, because that's to me at the end of the day, that's more interesting to me is just you know, writing about what I see in these films or what I feel from these films and the teams. Um, and it was intense very intense i'd seen most of the films i had most of the films so i was very familiar with them so that was a big boon i mean if i'd gone into that book cold god it would have taken five years you was there a lot of television stuff that you would have had to track down there was a couple of ones which are extremely hard to get you know very very hard you can only get them maybe in some countries or you can only get them on vhs or something like that but you know, I spent a few quid and I, I got those ones just to complete the collection and make it as comprehensive as possible. Because why write about 98% of them when you can get them all in there? You know, so yeah, it was great. You know, it was, it was fun times, but it was intense, man. A really, really intense period. What was the biggest revelation for you? The films that I came out loving was probably the biggest surprise, you know, because there's the ones which are great. You know, the undisputed classics like The Longest Yard and Deliverance and Smokey. But you know what? I ended up loving some of the ones in between, some of the smaller ones. I loved when he did these smaller indie movies, you know, when he got to play around a bit more. There was less expectation on him. But I also love <clears throat> that period which I discovered him, which was the 80s period. So Stick and Malone, Sharky's Machine. I mean... I... Which wasn't a great decade for him, really, at all. He was struggling with it. Oh. And he... He ended up in the in the video shop quite a lot around that time. Yeah, I mean, personally speaking, it was a bad time for him. Commercially speaking, like he was still getting paid big, big money. Like the yeah. likes of Orion, Mike Medavoy was paying him three million to star in Malone. You know, so they had faith in him that these were going to be big movies, and he was a still a big marquee name. 
but he hadn't that kind of cultural cachet that he did 10 years previous, you know, Smoking the Bandit and all those kind of movies. So the movies didn't do as well in the box office, you know, and he, he lost some of the power that he had. I mean, he struggled with stick with Universal. There was a big power struggle there between them. But you have to remember as well, in the 80s, it was the era of the, the, the hyper-masculine body, you know, with Jean-Claude Van Damme and Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sylvester Stallone. And Bert, at that stage, even though he was never like that, but he, he, was, he still had that ordinary guy look about him. You know, almost a kind of a, a cross between Clint Eastwood and Charles Bronson, almost, you know. Mm. I don't know. I, I, I always found myself attracted and going back to those smaller movies in between because I was less familiar with them than, say, Deliverance and those other movies. So for me, I had to go back as well, purely for the sake of the book. I had to delve in deeper to them more because I was less familiar with them, you know, and I ended up loving them. So. And the later work, did you find yourself enjoying his older performances you know there, there's some of the films which are pretty bad um but i'll always enjoy Burt's performance in them and that's that's <laughs> one of the that's one of the great things about Burt reynolds you could watch him in absolute trash and he is still enjoyable because he brings a sense of fun and a sense of delight to a role no matter what it is you know so um, well, I, I think that the, the kind of peak of that in, in some ways was probably hooper Oh, Hooper's fantastic, you know, and I think it's an underrated film. It's actually a very good film as well. You know, it kind of gets pegged in with the stroke races and the cannonball runs because it's of that era. But it's a terrific look at, you know, the, the unsung heroes of film world, which are stuntmen. I don't know, it's, it's Bert in his element, but it's Hal Needham making a very good film as well, which he doesn't often get credit for. There's a lot of great stunts and great set pieces in Hooper, but it's a much more human story. And I think it's the best on-screen pairing of... Bert and Sally Field, you can really, really feel the love in that movie, as opposed to, say, Smoking the Bandit 2, where you can see the cracks were in their relationship and it's bleeding out on screen. It's a very, it's a very emotional film, you know, so there's some, there is some drama and some dark thematic undercurrents in there underneath all the stunts and bluster. But I think he was having too much fun for some critics, and that's why they just kind of dissed him. Because yeah. all they were getting was him and his mustache and his shit-eating grin, and they, they couldn't enjoy that. Yeah, I agree. I, I think they, I think Bert always enjoyed himself on screen, and again, even in the darker films, you can just tell he's relishing it, you know. And I, mean, and I don't know, maybe it put some critics off or something, or maybe he did a, a remake of a Truffaut movie, The Man Who Loved Women, and that was a Blake Edwards film. He worked with some amazing directors, and that's one one of the great exciting things that. For me, approaching this book was I was getting to write about all these great directors that Bert worked with, you know. And again, it's something that's forgotten about that when, when people are talking about Bert or writing about Bert, that he worked with some of the best, and yeah. they loved him. They loved him. I mean, if you read any interviews with these guys, they loved him. Why that guy punched in the head? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was um, Dick Richards on Heat. Yeah, maybe he doesn't love him. <laughs> Did you hit your deadline on time, or was it a bit after the mark? Yeah, I think I went maybe about a month over just because um, a number of factors. I ended up going on a nationwide tour with Nick McLean in the middle of it all. So that kind of pushed things back a little bit, you know. Um, and then there was a couple of other just personal factors that came up. But it, it was grand. I got an extra month or so and that was it. It was great. The Burt Reynolds book came out in December 2018, 19, whatever it was. And then... Two months later, the Nick McLean book came out. So it was it was a roller coaster in terms of getting them out and promoting them 
and talking to everybody and doing our thing and book launches and all that. But like I say, we, me and Nick did that tour, which was that was that was amazing. It was one of my favorite times of my life, you know, where we got to go around all these great venues in Ireland and have a, what we call an evening with Nick McLean, which were these live on stage Q and A's that we did talking about his career and some of the venues. Some of the theaters, they'd, they'd show maybe the Goonies or Cobra or Short Circuit or Spaceballs, whatever it was. And we'd do a, a master class before and afterwards. And it was unreal. It was just like pinching myself. I'm on the road with Nick McLean going around Ireland and having fun. You know, it's unreal. So tell us a little bit about that book. Now, this is more of a memoir and and a co-written piece. Can you it get, is. You get, you're very, I don't know. It's interesting that, that you gave Nick that credit. I'm sure he would have told you not to. Well, I felt that he gave me so much information and his words are so important to to the text. He was my partner for those for that year, you know what I mean? And uh, on the tour and we just had an incredible bond and a great time writing. I mean, the way it worked was it was all conversations like Tom DeChillo. It was all conversations, you know, and I would work with Nick's words and work them into, you know, in and around my words. So in the book, it's essentially Nick's memoir. You know, it's his life story, his his journey through the films. But I I appear before each part, kind of giving the historical and cultural context of the movies that he's worked on. Because there's, as you know, there are some serious heavy hitter movies in there that yes. require, require such context. You know, so that's my job. I'm kind of the 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 commentator on everything in there. And it was an interesting book. I mean, it is a memoir, but I'm in there kind of guiding everyone through. And you know, one of the great thrills of the book as well was talking to Mike O'Shea, you know, who's another great camera operator and DP who worked with Walter Hill and he, he worked with Joe Dante and Joel Schumacher and all these great people before he went on to be a DP for Mel Brooks. And uh, Mike did my forward for that book, you know, which is, again, mm -hmm. a, a huge thrill to have, have someone of, of Mike's caliber and who, who's gone on to become a great friend of mine. I just, you know, it's kind of pinch me moments, you know, to see my name alongside these people on the covers, you know, because I grew up watching their movies and they're such a huge part of my life. It's weird now when I, I was up at the, up in Temple Bar last Halloween and we were watching, myself and my wife were watching The Lost Boys at the outdoor Halloween screening. In the middle of it, I was just marveling at Mike's camera work and I text him in the middle of it, you know, like, hey, I'm here watching The Lost Boys, you know, outdoors in Dublin. And he texted me back and just had that weird pinch me surreal moment of, yeah, I just text cinematographer, the, the cameraman of the Lost Boys, you know, just weird moments like that. You kind of have to remind yourself, I, I am a fan. You know, I'm not just a writer. It kind of takes care of the research. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, that's it. You, you, when you talk to these people, it they give you so much because they worked on the films and they know the people you're writing about. It's better than trawling through a thousand textbooks or other books because they're giving it to you direct from their own experiences. Oh, what's interesting about Nick, for instance, is that there's a, the modesty there that, that belies the talent. I love that about him. There's a kind of um, almost a, a kind of a crew mentality to him. He's not pretentious in any way. I loved that about him. If anything, I went into that book probably thinking, you know, OK, he's a, he's a director of photography. He's world renowned. You know, he's one of the best. I'm going to have to up my game here. I'm going to have to talk about mise-en-scene and colour and composition and cameras. And I probably sounded completely pretentious in my first couple of questions with him, but he straight away, he was all about just the stories. He's not in into the technical end of it, which I loved. It was great. It completely disarmed me. <laughs> you know, some guys are like that. Some guys are very technical and they talk about film stocks and camera lenses and all that. But Nick just, 
he's he's an, he has an incredible eye and he's just very humble about what the work he's done. But I had to keep reminding him that the stuff he has shot is usually influential, usually important. And that's why I was writing about him. And he understood that, but he, you know, he's, he's, he's not one to kind of dine out on it. Your new book, which is going to be published later in the year? Uh, next year. So I'd say it'll probably be mid next year, I assume. How did that come about? Tell us how it came about and what it's about. Again, same thing as with the Tom DeChilla book in terms of I finished the two books, my, my two last books, Burke Reynolds and Nick McLean. So I just found myself wanting to write. I did say afterwards that, I'm, hell, I'm going to take six months off and do nothing because I was absolutely burned out and exhausted. You know, nonstop writing, late nights, no sleep. The way it would work is, you know, I'd come home from work at half five, six o'clock, seven o'clock, start writing, go through to maybe three o'clock, some nights four o'clock, because you have to remember, I was also working as a journalist at the same time. Mm-hmm. I, was working, I was working for Hot Press magazine. So I was juggling the daytime job, the Hot Press magazine work, and two books. So I had to stay up till four o'clock or else it, it, something didn't get done. So I was just burnt out after, after it all. I needed a rest. And after a month or two, I just said, you know what? I miss writing. I want to get writing again. This whole thing of sitting on my ass on the couch is not for me. You know? And need to be working. So again, I had to think about what do I want to write about next? And one of the things I'm very passionate about is the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. And again, like the Burke Reynolds stuff, there are certain elements of a Nightmare on Elm Street which I don't feel have been explored in great depth in literature. So that was my angle. I just wanted to write about the whole franchise, film by film, delving into the themes that Wes Craven laid down in his first film. But again, the book is, has, has become something different. I mean, it's it's not just my analysis anymore. It's become this huge team because I've ended up talking to many directors, cinematographers, and I recently spoke to Robert England, Freddy Krueger himself, which you know I couldn't believe. You know, that was one of the highlights of my career. It was one of the most amazing two-hour conversations of my Do life. Do you have a specific target in mind about the, the original franchise when you went into writing the book? In terms of my ideas and the teams? Yeah, and what you were going to present at the end of it all. Because one thing about the Nightmare franchise, it's, it more recently a lot of stuff has been written about it. When you're going for any subject, it's great now you know where the, where the publishing uh, lies with it. Yeah. So you're not wasting time because there was always that danger with some stuff that you could write it and find it either no one wanted it or there was a legal reason that you couldn't complete the damn thing. It's It's been so scrutinized and documented over the years, as you say, in documentaries and whatever else that, I don't know, maybe they're sick about it at this stage. I don't know. We well, see New Line aren't, the existing New Line aren't the New Line really that made the films. Bob Shea isn't the head of New Line anymore. And New Line is, is part of Warner Brothers. So it's it's a whole different thing, you know. So I didn't go... It is that the story of New Line's rise to success is part of the New Line st- or the, the Freddy Krueger story because they call New Line the house that Freddy built because mm-hmm. the success of A Nightmare on Elm Street enabled New Line to become the company that it did and fund other films. You know, these other kind of maverick filmmakers and they took chances on indie movies and arthouse movies all because of the success of A Nightmare on Elm Street. But um, it, it's part of the story, but it's not, like I say, I didn't want to it to be too much of a making of book because that's there already in other texts. It's I'm, I'm talking to a lot of the filmmakers about the stories, about the characters, about the teams that are lying there 
underneath the surface. And that's my that's my angle on it. And I've had some, you know, success in reaching people, which has been great. But I'm happy now. I have Robert England. I have some of the directors and DPs and some of the actors. I've reached my, my target now. So it's just a case of finishing the book, putting it together and looking forward to it coming out. Maybe we'll have a Q&A with Robert at the end because it was such a special conversation that it'd be a shame to just pepper his quotes throughout the text, which I'll do with some of them because they're vital to certain things I'm talking about. But I think that, you know, we'll wrap up the book on a, a good Q&A that me and Robert had, which was unbelievably fascinating. You know, Robert is so loquacious and such a great raconteur that it was one of the best conversations I've ever had with a, an actor or filmmaker. Vincent Price of the 2020s. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Oh, man, he's so full of personality and so full of these great anecdotes and stories and you know he told me about his time he was here on holidays i think last year and you know he's he's so literate that as you're talking to him it's where he's reading from a text you know he's he's theatrical he he comes from theatrical background and he's just he's just one of the great pleasures i've had in this career so far was talking to him obviously wes craven is not here anymore wes is gone um unfortunately the first chapter of this book where i'm talking about the first film is kind of the tribute to him because in that chapter I talk about his other work as well and he was so such an influential director for me I mean he's one of the to me he's one of the great Hollywood directors of all time certainly the last 50 years I mean he was unrivaled in the horror genre as a director of intellect intelligence and depth you know he brought a great kind of social awareness and social conscience to these which are on the surface monster movies but if you look at a nightmare on elm street the first one and the series as it develops, it goes into teams of of family and you know broken homes and divorce and abuse and alcoholism and all that. And that stems from a nightmare on Elm Street kind of being this allegory for the nightmare of America, the death of the American dream and the death of American innocence after the 60s and the kind of decadence of the 70s. And you have these burnt out parents you know, middle-class parents with the nice picket fence and the, the tract houses or whatever they are, but their their kids are messed up. They're they're chemically dependent or they're, they're medicated. And, you know, Freddie's kind of the manifestation of maybe the guilt and the sin of the parents. So there's all these wonderful themes in there, which I find immensely fascinating. So what do you think is the key thing that makes those films so successful? Oh, mm-hmm. Robert, Robert England, without a doubt. You know, um, I think on the surface, you have to, I have to admit on the surface, they are monster movies. And that's why kids, when I was a kid, gravitated to them. It's because of Robert England. It's because of his portrayal of Freddy Krueger. But as we get older, well, at least some of us, as we get older and we live with these films, we we gravitate to the teams that are beyond the surface. And I think that's why they're such a rich franchise and so great to mine for these kind of teams because it's all there. You know? Well, we were saying this before, but the interesting thing about Freddy is he's an anomaly. He's the first monsters that came along of all the monsters in the 70s and 80s that had a personality <laughs> no oh, absolutely not i mean if you look at part two there's a shot in part two where there was some negotiating nego- negotiating hardball going on between robert england and new line over payment and whatever bring them back for the second one so there was a bit of hardball being played and they got this other guy they cast this other guy as freddie and he's in there in a couple of shots in part two one notable shot, which is the in, in the shower sequence where the teacher gets whipped with the towels. And he comes in and he's this big lumbering lump of a guy walking like Frankenstein. And that's the guy that they replaced Robert England with. <laughs> oh, Jack Shoulder said after seeing it, I said, screw this, get Robert England, whatever you do. 
you know, because this guy is not going to work. You can't just put any guy in a mask and he's Freddy. Freddy Krueger is Robert England. And Robert brings that sense of theater, that sense of mime and dance and swagger to Freddy Krueger. You know what I mean? He brings such great depth and subtext to the character that wouldn't be there if you just put a stuntman in the suit. Mm -hmm. And so another year deadline of this book? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, but you know, um, I've got more of a handle on it these days of how to juggle everything. I don't write for Hot Press anymore. You know, it was getting too much, you know, juggling magazine work, a day job as a librarian and writing books. But I am working on some other books at the same time. But like I say, I have a bit more of a handle on how to juggle everything and how to divide my time. And so just tell us a little bit about your music writing. You're doing a few uh, music bios. Is, yeah, is, is that very different to approach? Is there anything to think about differently when you're doing that? Well, it's different in terms of my, my music criticism work with Hot Press because that was literally, you know, more journalistic work where you're reviewing albums, reviewing concerts, interviewing art, uh, artists about their latest release or whatever. But with the music books that I'm doing, they're memoirs. You know, so there are autobiographies or whatever. So they're very personal. It's a different approach than, say, the Nightmare on Elm Street book, which is you're you're approaching an art form and you're you're analyzing it, criticizing it, whatever, and you're inter you're interviewing all these people about the making of them. It's much different. It's a much more intense situation because you're 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 never off the clock. You're always always striving for those personal stories and the personal background and. It's such a thrill, you know, because it's very interesting. It's it's a different kind of book than writing about the making of movies or whatever it is. But I, I absolutely love it. And I wouldn't be doing it if I didn't love the people that I'm writing about. Again, that that muscle of you have to love the the subjects before you can go near it. Oh, you have to. Absolutely have to. You yourself uh, primarily as a film writer, music writer. Gun to the head, which one? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. I'm happy enough to say writer these days, um, just yeah, in yeah. general, you know, um, because I've I've done so much stuff now over the years between newspapers and magazines and books and websites, whatever, that it's it's kind of oscillated between film and music all throughout, you know, because I got hot press, not through my own approach. They they asked me, because what happened was a friend of mine was playing here with his band, who were headlining Slain, and I knew Hot Press were doing a a special edition special issue on the band so I, I i approached him i said listen um if if you're interested i can do a freelance piece for you i'll interview my friend he you know he's, he's more than happy to do it and you can have it as part of your piece your special edition so they they took it on they published it as part of the special issue which was great it was a great thrill for me as a long-term reader of hot press i've been buying that for years you know and um i got a call from the editor one day and she said hey would you like to join the team and i was I was working a crappy job at the time. I was like, holy shit, are you serious? Absolutely. Yeah, this is amazing. Yes. And it was all because of that article that I did. A great boon to me. And again, it's never thought I'd be writing for Hot Press. So it was unbelievable. What's your rewriting policy? I don't tend to do multiple drafts. I tend to all keep it into one, to one document and just work on a piece until I'm happy. I don't go back too often unless... For technical reasons, say I get get an interview late in the game and I have to go back and put them in and maybe shape the, the piece around their words a little bit more. But other than that, I just tend to work on it until I'm happy with it. And the book kind of builds as I'm going along. And I know I'm happy with it as I'm going along. I, I very rarely go back and do a second draft or anything like that. And I say the biggest 
conversation I've had with an editor was on the first Tom the Chill book, like you said, where they said, could you put in this extra introduction? You know, and that was the biggest change I've ever had to make in terms of a manuscript. And that was nothing. I mean, they didn't touch a word of my book as I gave it to them. So they just they, they just suggested putting in this extra bit, which was great. I couldn't believe that like Columbia University, one of the, the great kind of academic places in the world, took my book without changing it. You know what I mean? I, I, was, I was fully expecting to come back with heaps of notes and guidelines on what to do or suggestions. But no, they, they loved the book as it was, which was a tremendous boon to me as a young writer, you know, starting out my first book. So any advice for budding writers? I mean, it, it's a very specialist kind of area. And I think it takes a certain kind of energy and passion. Would you agree with that? Oh, without doubt. I mean, you're not in it for the money or the glory. <laughs> you know, you're you're in it because you're doing something you love. You're immersed in this world. You know what I mean? You're contributing to the history that has meant so much to you. You know what I mean? Like in terms of if anybody wants to study Tom DeCillo now, they, have, they, they study my book. You know, I've, I've been talking to some people in various universities who've, it's, it's on the curriculum, you know what I mean? Because if they're studying Tom DeCillo or indie books, it's on the, the reading list, you know, so they have to go and get my book and flick for it, whatever it is. So, you know what I mean? To, to, to be able to contribute to an artist's legacy or history is such a huge thrill, you know what I mean? And you would never exchange that for a few quid. Just that feeling alone that you've you've done some good work and you've contributed to to film literature or film history or film criticism, whatever way you want to put it. I mean, that to me is the biggest thrill of all, you know, and getting to know these people, you know, is just incredible. But I would say the most important thing is, I guess it's an any arts criticism, but film in particular is watch the bloody films. Watch the films, goddammit, because... You know, when I was in college, some, some, sometimes, you know, we'd be studying movies and you had to do exams on them. Some of the people didn't even watch the movies. And I was like, how can you write about a movie or answer questions and you haven't even watched it? Because they consult textbooks, which gives them kind of information on them. They think that's enough. But I always think you have to understand the art. I mean, you have to spend time and live with these movies, you know. And I mean, for me growing up, my, my film school was my living room. My teacher was the film's. The films and the art itself is the greatest teacher of all. Yeah, and your own point of view, as we were saying, have a point of view. Yeah, you I mean, right to have a point of view as much as any academic or any other writer who puts pen to paper. Yeah, I mean, you have to have a point of view because. Would you? But you get it from the source. You don't get it from another book you read. <laughs> exactly. You know what I mean? And that's it's it's engagement with the text. I think that that's important. You know what I mean? And bring your ideas. Bring your history you know, and bring your interest in maybe certain teams. I mean, you could be looking at a film and you might spot a team in there and think it's very prevalent and very important to the, to the context of the film. Would it, the director mightn't have put it there or it mightn't be there, but you're mm. bringing it to it. And I think every, if, if, you, if you write well and you, you bring some depth to your analysis, it's completely valid because art is in the eye of the beholder. You know, you, you bring to it to art, your your own history, your own sensibilities. Even though, you know, I've written the, the definitive book on Tom DeCillo, I would love to see someone else write a book on him because I'd always be open to hearing other ideas. You know, it could have been something I've missed or someone might add to something that I've written about, but I would just love to see these artists being celebrated, not just by me, but by, by many other people. So always open to hearing other people's ideas. That's what I love about film criticism and film history is reading other people's interpretations of these texts you know what i mean because that's what it's all about really that's what we're doing we're just we're bringing our ideas 
and history. So that's what it's all about to me. You know, that's exactly what it's all about. So what are the lessons learned then from what if you were to go back and talk to Wayne when he was starting out his writing career, would you would you vent to say to him and say, no, 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 don't do that? Or what would you say? God, what would I say? Because you did everything wrong, let's face it. <laughs> I'd say have more more belief in yourself in the early on, you know, because you would often hear whispers of, oh, who's gonna who's gonna publish that or that no one's gonna want to read that. You did do that. I think that you're did that in bounce in leaps of bounce, you know? Yeah, I, I I had to overcome some of those kind of negative comments, but you know, I, I don't think I would change anything. I mean, I'm so happy to the point of where I am now. I mean, I wouldn't change a thing because if I changed any of it, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today. And yeah. what I'm doing today is I'm, I'm living the, the dream of working with, with these artists that I really love, you know, some of whom are my friends. And I wouldn't change a thing because it's just, it's a writing is just a great life. I kind of fell into it. You know, I never, I never set out when I was a kid, I wanted to be a writer. I knew deep down I wanted to do something to do with film, you know, and it turns out that maybe maybe I have a knack for writing because editors and publications seem to like my work, so that that's something. Mm-hmm.